and handing out a whole bunch of flyers. What were you? Just knows if anyone will come. But <laughs> what were they flyers for? Um, the Jewish Voice for Peace fight for an education in Palestine. Uh huh. Um, it's tonight. I can't go if Hillel doesn't approve. I'm sorry. It's just... <laughs> so sad. Um, but it's tonight at 6.30 in Perlman Lounge, if anyone's interested. It'll be really interesting. We have um, two young adults from Palestine who are coming to talk about the issues of trying to get an out, to try and get an edition, trying to get an education in the occupied territories. Mm-hmm. Um, and the issues that the occupation has caused for their education. Neat. Good. Um, I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, and on inauguration day, too. <laughs> Was that planned? No. <laughs> well, it worked out. Yeah, we also have something on liquid latex day. We're just actually really bad at planning things. Oh, really? just doesn't. I went to see uh, the the um, Peter Brook uh, Beckett fragments last night, um, which are only on till Sunday, but they're quite amazing. So um, if if you have time, if you have an hour and thirty nine dollars, you should go to um, they. You should go see these at, at um, the the Cutler Majestic. It's the Emerson Emerson Arts. Someone gave them an insane amount of money like two years ago. And now they're doing really amazing things theatrically in Boston. Um, and this show was, was quite something. What's um, it called? The show? It's called Fragments, and it's Peter Brook who's now... Do people know who he is? Um, he's like uh, possibly the greatest living theatrical director. He's 85 years old. Um, he's done many, many, many legendary things in his life. Um, and this is... Um, uh, he did two hour-long shows, one by Dostoevsky and, and one which is um, five very short Beckett pieces. Um, and they're touring the world, and they're in Boston this week. Um, and uh, the Beckett was really amazing. Um, Laura saw the Dostoevsky, and uh, she, thought, she thought that was good, but that the Beckett was um, uh, better. Um, so you should try It's It's on until Sunday. Um, you should try to see it, artsemerson.org. Um, all right, let us go back to Comus. Um, I picked the wrong one, but that's okay. Um, I'm not a horrible person for liking Comus. Who said you were? Did someone say you were? Yeah. Who said that? <laughs> After class? No. <laughs> you said you have to be really screwed up to like Comus when he starts getting all yuck. Yeah, but do you like him when he's getting all yuck? No, I like it. Well, no, not the bit when he got really mad. Yeah. I mean, mad British, not mad American. Um, <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Before that, I... Okay, let us just look at... Basically, um, what we should look at is, is the argument, arguments between Comus and the lady. Um, so, what... Um, um, we should start with is... Um, Uh, no, I'm not. Yeah, I did. I did drive the wrong book. So is it May Lady Sit? If I but wave this. No, no, no. It's it's um. um yeah, actually, yes. Yes, it's yeah, uh, that's six, good. Six, oh. Yeah, yeah. Um. So uh, the attendant spirit, disguised as 
The shepherd Thursus, good. Um, leads the brothers on, but now we get to the lady, um, and Comus has now come out as, and what kind of character from the Fairy Queen might he remind you of? Archimago-like character. He pretended to be just a kindly shepherd offering her shelter, a sort of hermit type, but it turns out that he's an evil archmagician. Um, Who is offering her shelter? Yeah. To his credit. <laughs> yes, yes. Not what she was expecting. But he's got this ability to smell chastity from afar. That yes. incredible. <laughs> <laughs> what a superpower. I know. Wait, wait, I hear chased footballs, or no, I feel something chased. The first time I saw um, Jay Leno, he was on, um, he was a guest on a show, and he described going to see E.T., he was, he was basically, it was, a, it was a misogynist rant about this woman that he went to see E.T. with, it was a blind date, and he said that he knew that she was too stupid for him when they were watching E.T., and at the very end of E.T., um, when the bicycles start flying, sorry if this is a spoiler, um, <laughs> she suddenly says, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's the part she can believe? Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it is incredible that Comus can smell chastity from far away. <laughs> Who knew there were such people? Um, so... He then is, we, we've missed some, something, but nothing that we need to worry about, um, but now the lady knows what's going on. Nay, lady, sit, says Comus, if I but wave this wand, your nerves are all chained up in alabaster, and you, a statue, or as Daphne was, root-bound that fled Apollo. Who's Daphne? She is the source of what? She turns into flower. It, a tree. A tree? Yeah, what kind of tree? Laurel. Laurel. Laurel, yes. We talked about that a little bit when we were doing Elicitus. Otherwise um, used in cooking. Importantly, <laughs> otherwise used in cooking. Sorry. Importantly, otherwise And she replies, Fool, do not boast. Thou canst not touch the freedom of my mind with all thy charms. Although this corporal rind thou hast immanacled while heaven sees good. So you can do whatever you want to my body she says, but you can't touch my mind. Um, an important thing to say, that where, where her freedom is, is mental freedom. Um, you can immanicle my body, but you can't do anything to my mind. Now, the thing, though, about chastity is it seems to be a quality of the body. Um, and yet, in a sense, that's what she's denying. What she's saying is chastity is a mental and not a physical um, property. So Comus responds, Why are you vexed, lady? Why do you frown? Here dwell no frowns, nor anger from these gates sorrow flies, nor anger from these gates sorrows fly far. See, here be all the pleasures that fancy can beget on youthful thoughts when the fresh blood grows lively and returns brisk as the April buds in primrose season. So this, in a way, is um, Spencer's version of the—I mean, Spencer's Milton's version of Spencer's song in *The Bower of Bliss*. That is, look at all this beauty, look at all this plenty. Why be Guyon-like? Because she's not really being Britomart-like; she's being Guyon-like. Why be Guyon-like amidst all this beauty? Um, brisk as the April buds in primrose season. Primroses are the roses of the prime—that is, roses of spring. 
in primrose season. And first behold this cordial julep here that flames and dances in his crystal bounds with spirits of balm and fragrant syrups mixed. Not that Nepenthes which the wife of Thon in Egypt gave to Jove born Helena is of such power to stir up joy as this, to life so friendly or so cool to thirst. Why should you be so cruel to yourself and to those dainty limbs which nature lent for gentle usage and soft delicacy? So she talks about her corporal, corporal rind. Um, he's talking about the body as a gift of God. Um, an odd thing, because you would expect the argument could go, would go the other way. That is, the seducer would say, why are you so concerned about your body? It's not what really counts. Um, virginity is, is just obsession with bodies. Um, and the person who is resisting seduction would say, no, the body is a gift of God. Um, but, but Comus is saying the opposite. Yeah. What about the two brothers whose conversation sort of links that, where one brother says to the other, it's okay, don't worry, her chastity will protect her. Yeah. It's almost as if her physical chastity will protect her, her, or her mental chastity will protect her body, rather. Well, yeah, so, but the question then is, are the brothers worried about seduction or are they worried about rape? And they can't quite tell the difference. Um, well, I'm not so sure they're useless, but part, remember part of the point here is that they're three kids um, in this mask, and what uh, Milton is doing is giving them all parts, um, like a school play. And um, they all have good parts, and they have an interesting argument also, um, which is whether to be optimistic or pessimistic. That's essentially what their argument is about. Um, should you worry about things, uh, should you worry about things when you can't help them and when you don't know what's going to happen? Or should you have faith that they're going to come out okay? Um, and both, I mean, to talk about the brothers, both are reasonable um, halves of an attitude towards the world. Um, <coughs> and it's uh, that question which <coughs> is um, one, in a sense, that goes back to Augustine. Um, is basically you can't either, um, it's not right either to be overconfident nor to be underconfident. Um, if you're overconfident, then you're going to get slammed um, because, um, like Eve, you're going to believe yourself capable of um, resisting everything and you're not going to be careful and not going to take steps to make sure that things are okay. If you're underconfident, you'll simply despair. Um, you won't apply for jobs in a bad job market. Um, you will assume that the worst will happen and that there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and so there are dangers both ways. Economists call, call, um, talk about being underconfident as being risk aversive, which is a bad thing to be. Um, risk, what you should be is risk neutral. That's the, um, a modern vocabulary. Um, for the same debate that's going on in religious terms uh, between the brothers. Um, you will get cheated if you're risk-aversive, and you will get cheated if you're risk-embracing. Um, the proper way to maximize your possibilities are to be risk-neutral. Yeah. Um, this, this kind of this, this argument for uh, mental chastity uh, as being more powerful than, than physical chastity or, or being the kind of the, yeah, as being being more uh, more powerful, I, I feel like it. In some ways, this will sound a little off, but in some ways, it kind of it it 
brings um, rape into a into a neutral realm where you say, well, if 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 somebody gets raped, they they can still maintain their chastity um, if they are uh, if they're raped, if it's a mental state, if they if they do it, if it's if they are you know sexually involved, you know, against their will. Mm -hmm. um, so that's weird. Yeah, but that's also important to see as true. Mm. That is to say that um, cultures which blame rape victims are those which see rape as, um, as besmirching the person raped, as opposed to only besmirching the rapist. Right. And um, they're not actually considering the possibility that, they're not seriously considering the possibility that she'll be raped. Um, yeah, they're a bit indolent. They just left her there. Well, no, they were looking... There's a lot of stuff here that has to be... Um, that the level that you understand it on um, uh, can be argued. But part of what's going on here is there's a lot of Spencer in this play, but there's also a lot of Midsummer Night's Dream in the play. Um, and um, you know, what Milton went to see... Um, Shakespeare's very late plays, their first performances. He lived walking distance from the Globe Theater, um, and his father used to take him to see those plays when he was seven or eight years old. Um, Milton loved Shakespeare. He was the, probably the first great poet um, to say that Shakespeare was um, the greatest English poet. Um, and um, there's a lot of um, Miltonic transmutation of Shakespeare, as well as a lot of Miltonic uh, transmutation of Spencer. Um, part of what he wants here is just the same sort of thing that happens in A Midsummer Night's Dream. That is that um, the wood is dangerous, but it's also a fairy tale. It's magic. Um, the lady, the, the girl playing her is 15 years old. He's not going to bring real rape in. You know, you have to consider the audience here, too. And the audience is includes, as with school plays, the actors. That is, why do you have school plays? Because really, who they're for are the kids who are in them. Um, they're not like real-life plays, which are partly for the actors, but mainly for the audience. Um, they're for the kids and their parents who only care about their kids' part. Um, I say this with some bitterness this week. Um, because I think they, they just the people running the school play just gave their kids the best parts. Um, and my son is a really good actor, but he just that's got shunted nepotism. off. That's nepotism. You can write something about it. Next yes. year you should run the school play. Yeah, well, yeah. that would make me <laughs> even more bitter. <laughs> <laughs> there would be one lead role that would go to your son. <laughs> that's yeah. just mean. Some people the townsman Bennett, that's who Julian is playing. Luckily, another kid dropped out because he couldn't stand his little part, so Julian actually has two parts. He's also the rich man. Um, Clearly. It's a play that it's a play that the parents wrote for for their brats. Yeah, I mean they they feel like because they spent all this time writing the play and putting the scenery together and and rehearsing it and all that um, while I stayed home and watched reruns of Lost that they get to decide who um, who gets who gets to do what. <laughs> yes, but th come on, fix was in. Oh my. Yeah, I think so. I'm glad you agree. Anybody who can scold someone who popped at a meter deserves a big pop. <laughs> it's true. I mean a high beat. Do you know what she's referring to? Hell, tell it's a good story. So I wrote this book about the concept of altruistic punishment, which is a really important and interesting and counterintuitive um, concept. It is, that we um, all have the urge to punish people who are bad in books. Yeah. 
Um, but it's basically that um, people who start... I was a, When I was a kid, my father would always um, get angry at people who were doing shit. Um, and he still does. And it, I still have the same archaic response to it. Like, we'll be walking through Central Park and um, some guy will be riding a bike um, on a do-not-ride-here path. And my father will um, start yelling at him. You know, and it's like this combination of embarrassment and also, like, you're crazy, why are you doing this? Um, if you yell at the wrong person. My father actually was arrested three times for getting pissed off at cops who weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Um, and he actually won um, some money from the city of New York on uh, St. Patrick's Day. He was, he was, I'd given him a Walkman for his birthday, and he was walking through the park on St. Patrick's Day, and some cops in, in a park vehicle blared at him. He couldn't really hear it because he had the Walkman on. Um, and so um, he finally heard it, and he got out of the way, and as they, yelled, as they went past, he yelled, fuck you. So they stopped and rear-cuffed him and um, brought him to the station. Um, and um, he's olive-skinned. No, it wasn't St. Patrick's Day. It was, it was Puerto Rican Pride Day. And he's olive-skinned. And um, so it looked like it was, and they were white and Irish, and it looked like they thought he was Puerto Rican, and, you know, this kind of shabby Puerto Rican guy walking through the park listening to a Walkman um, during working hours. So they thought they had him. Oh, that's so racist. And then, yeah, but then they asked for his ID, and he pulled out his wallet, an American Express card fell out, and suddenly they were very worried. (laughs) Um, And... Suddenly, um, his cultural capital. Yeah, no. So a friend of his said, "See, they wouldn't have done this to you if you were white," which he realized was true. Um, that is that they had mistaken him for someone who wasn't white, and he he got a sense of that. But anyhow, he sued the city of New York and won money and got on TV. And um, but that was altruistic punishment. He was pissed off at these cops. He he has a pet peeve, which is vehicles on pedestrian pathways in Central Park. The peeve continues to be his pet. His, his well-nurtured pet. Um, Handed down to the secondary characteristic of grandson, which yes. is generally the way. Yeah, but so this always embarrassed me um, from my childhood when he would yell at people in stores and I would kind of be behind him making faces to the person saying, <laughs> So... Um, then four years ago, we were walking through New York, um, my son, the actor, Julian, um, and I, and a couple of other, and, and, and um, Laura and Daniel, and someone double parked, at, uh, or parked at a hydrant, just pulled in, and Julian started yelling, you can't park there, you can't park there, how dare you? Uh, and I said, Julian, and he just gave me this sweet smile. He said, I was doing altruistic punishment. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, he also likes the parts he likes in plays are the cantankerous characters. He loves to play cantankerous characters. It's a child of my own heart. <laughs> so, and how this is relevant to Comus is that these are three kids who are playing these roles. And they're playing themselves. Um, but if you're just, you know, when you write the school play for your kid, if you're that kind of person, which I take it you won't be, but when you write the school play and pick your kid for the major role, um, 
and if they're 15 or, or under, you don't want the play to be about rape. <laughs> Seduction, maybe. Um, but it's just not going to enter into the play as play. So it's okay for the two brothers to go off to the extent that the play is written for people that age. Um, because, the, because chastity, yeah, you're taught about chastity, you know, in... Um, in um, health and human... What do you call sex ed in fifth grade? It's the health and human... Um, just call it the talk. No, no, no. But when you, when you have to go to health classes, health oh, and health. hygiene, whatever those things are, that's where you learn about, about not smoking and about sex ed. Um, and hopefully the lesson takes. Um, but that's where you learn that you shouldn't be having sex. <laughs> that's when you learn that you shouldn't be having sex in sixth or seventh grade, and that's how old she is, um, or eighth grade. She's sort of uh, at that liminal age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where chastity is is right, but um, they're not having the rape conversation yet. Um, so for the brothers to worry about her chastity is really a worry about um, seduction and about talking to strangers. Um, it's does she know not to talk to strangers? Stranger or danger. Not? Stranger mm. danger, exactly. Um, so, um, so that really isn't an issue in the play. It matters because this is going to come back in Paradise Regained. That is, what happens in Paradise Regained is um, uh, it's it's like Sherlock Holmes and Professor Moriarty. Mm. Uh, they finally meet Satan and the Son of God. Uh, and Jesus falls. at the Reichenbach Falls um, or similar falls outside of Jerusalem. Um, and the point is that Satan um, cannot um, physically hurt Jesus. That's not part of the rules of engagement. Um, and Jesus is also indifferent to physical pain. Um, it has to be a seduction um, because the satanic figure, Comus or Satan, um, or whoever, um, that figure does what he wants not um, through force. Everyone in Milton is against force. Comus goes bad when he starts threatening to use force. Um, but through um, going far deeper into the mind of the victim, which is changing who they are. Um, so the question is, so what um, victory for the forces of darkness would be is to change who, a good, to change a good character into a bad character, um, to make that character give up their commitment to goodness. Um, and it's not so much, I mean, in a way, what makes Comus an appealing character, and why I agree with Vina, is that he's not interested so much in, oh, she's hot, I'm going to have sex with her, as, oh, I want, she's hot, I want her to um, want to have sex, I want <coughs> her to agree. Um, that is to say that, that um, there's a respect. What makes Milton's evil characters so powerful and possibly so heroic is that they always show respect for the good. Um, not respect for goodness, but respect for the humanity or for the reality or for the fact that um, those that they are trying to seduce are persons. Um, they are not treating them as objects. If the great moral rule 
um, is to recognize that others are real. Um, that's what um, that's that's a good translation of the golden rule. Um, do not do unto others um, what is hateful to you, as in Hillel's formulation. Since I dissed Hillel, now I'll praise it. But that's a different Hillel. Um, that's the whole of the law, to quote Yola Tango. Um, if that's a good song, if you don't know it, the whole of the law. That's a great Yola Tango song. Do you know Yola Tango? Did people not know? Oh, they're totally great. Um, you should go. You should just listen to samples on iTunes. Um, treat others as real. Very, very hard thing to do. That's also what Kant says. Um, and the um, that's something that Milton's great villains do. That is, it's not that they treat others as objects for their own convenience. It's that what it, the desire to corrupt, if you see it as a desire to corrupt, is a desire to make a, to bring a person fully to your side, not a desire to treat a person as an object and to ignore their humanity, but to bring them fully to your side. So what happens in Paradise Regained is also what happens in Comus, which is that it is seduction. Uh, it's an attempt to seduce the good person and to make that person change their mind, not simply to use violence against that person. Um, and those are very different things. Um, I think morally, the seducer is always above the rapist, let's say, as a moral character. Although, and this is what you were saying, Julian, um, the strange um, um, counterpart to that is that in some sense, rape does less to, does less harm to a good person than seduction does. Um, rape is something which only reflects badly on the rapist, but does not, and, it's a, and it causes very grave in, injury to the victim, but it does not corrupt the victim. Because there's no participation. Because there's no participation. Whereas seduction does <laughs> not do so much injury to the victim, but does corrupt the victim. Um, even the word victim is probably the wrong word to use in, in talking about seduction. Um, so that there's an interesting um, um, asymmetry in the evil actions and the evil results of those actions. Um, the worse action produces results that are not ultimately from the point of view of God, from the point of view of the soul. The worse action produces results that are not as evil as the less bad action does. And that's a conflict. That is to say, what someone like Satan or Comus will say is actually seduction. Um, the very fact that it's not evil will show that, that believing that the seduced person is doing evil by allowing herself to be seduced or himself to be seduced shows that, um, that the so-called forces of goodness are against freedom.
if you allow yourself to be seduced, that might be um, an understanding of the fact that the seducer is not evil, but is, is letting you freely choose what you want to do. And if you get punished for an exercise of your own freedom, the punisher might not be on the side of good. That's what Satan is going to believe and say. It's not what Comus believes and says. Comus is interested in seducing the lady, but he's also interested in, um, in uh, leaving her without a note the next morning. Um, so he is lying to her. Um, he wants her to want to have sex with him, but he also likes the idea that once that happens, she'll feel bad about it. Um, and um, it will it will um, have been a bad thing that he does to her. But still, the structure is the structure we're going to see in Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, which is a structure where wanting to um, seduce the whole person of the target shows a kind of respect for them as a whole person, acknowledges that they're a whole person, which reflects back on the acknowledger as um, someone who knows and takes seriously the personhood of those that they're interacting with. But isn't the idea that they take them seriously as a conquest, that it's more yeah. fulfilling for, for them to corrupt the whole of the right. person? Right, and that's what's going on in comas, for sure. Um, but again, it's worth then thinking about the extent to which comas is like um, uh, Paradise Regained, but also the extent to which it's unlike Paradise Lost. So yeah, what you're saying is absolutely right, and um, it then depends on what part of that you're emphasizing. <coughs> um, yeah, wanting to... It, it's what you get if you know the Flannery O'Connor story, Good Country People. Um, it's what you get in Good Country People. Um, that is the satanic figure in that. Um, wants an utterly humiliating conquest of those who he conquers and succeeds in conquers. He's the Bible salesman. You know how many people know that story? Um, so the Bible salesman the, in Good Country People um, is the Satan figure in that story. Um, that's not really a spoiler. You can tell that if you know anything about Flannery O'Connor, you'll know it from the first sentence. Um, it's an amazing story. Um, so yeah, so Flannery O'Connor believes it is sort of it takes your view, Steve, which is that the desire to corrupt the whole person is sheerly evil. But we don't get his point of view. In Milton, we do get the point of view of the seducers. And, um, and they care. They're not, um, they're not ex exemplums of just the most fiendish evil. Um, you know, the most fiendish evil is, um, in general, getting someone to do the thing that with their whole soul will make them most unhappy when they think about it afterwards. Um, that's what fiendish evil is. And the standard um, mythological depiction of that is getting someone to eat their own children um, and to enjoy eating their own children. Titus Andronicus. Sorry? Titus Andronicus. Titus Andronicus is a late version of that. But um, that's... a gruesome line where he said, Ed, she has daintily fed upon her children. Uh, uh. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's, so, so the, the point is to produce a wholehearted action on, a wholehearted um, pleasure taking on the part of the person that you are trying to destroy. Make them take wholehearted pleasure 
and then make them recollect that wholehearted pleasure as the most horrible thing that could have happened to them and that they've ever done in their lives. Um, so seduction, that's how, that's how Flannery O'Connor is seeing it. Um, and in fact, in good country people, you could arguably say that there's self-cannibalism going on. Arguably. Um, it's certainly what, um, if you've seen or read Hannibal, the last of the three Hannibal Lecter films and novels, um, that's certainly the revenge. Have you guys seen it? Read it? Do you know? Hannibal, but I thought it was the second. No, the second is Silence of the Lambs. Oh, um, The first is um, Red... What's, Red what's Dragon? Yeah. No, the, no, it's not Red Dragon. It's, um... Because isn't Red Dragon the one about the... Fr- no, no, that's a... No, I yeah, it is Red Dragon. Yeah, yeah it, it, and the movie version of Red Dragon, the first movie version was Manhunter. Well, that was the fellow with the tattoos, right? The Red Dragon one. Um, I'm not remembering the tattoos, but it may be. Um, anyhow, Silence of the Lambs is the second. The third one is... Um, uh, is um, Hannibal, and the guy who wants to take revenge on, on Hannibal Lecter... Spoiler... He fails, um, naturally. Um, but what he wants is to show Hannibal, show Hannibal Lecter, make Hannibal Lecter watch himself being eaten by pigs. Um, that's a hard thing to do, but he figures out a way to do it. Um, and um, that's disgusting. Yeah, it's Milton. <laughs> It makes me think of Spencer, actually. Okay, a good. Bit. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the character's names though, but the, that. Um, <gasps> oh my God! I'm a, I'm quiz a after quiz. Person, yes. I know. But when they uh, they take all those people captive, and the guy wants the girl, so she's like, but he doesn't rape her. He, he wants her to love him, and then she kind of pretends to to keep him away. So he's like a bad guy, yeah, but yeah, then yeah. he dies defending her. So it's a sort of like. Yeah. Bad, but not all bad. Right. Kind of thing. Like a droid changing of the subject. Nice. Good. So. Um, but at any rate, that's that's what it would be to um, to try to destroy someone by, um, you know, the bad seducer is is the loveless one, the one who wants to seduce someone um, and then leave them and make them see how tricked they've been. Um, but that's not what you get in Milton. Um, and it is what you get in Comus. You won't get it later in Paradise Lost. Um, you won't get it in Paradise Regained. And it's a question to ask about Samson, which is also about seduction. Dolly Law, as we pronounce her name in Samson, not Delilah, but Dolly Law, um, uh, seduces Samson. And the question is, what does she want? Why does she do it? Um, so the characters to put into a kind of juxtaposition to each other from Comus onwards are Comus, Satan in Paradise Lost. So Comus is to the lady as Satan in Paradise Lost is to Eve. Um, Satan in Paradise Regained to Jesus. Um, <coughs> and then Dolly Law to Samson in um, Samson Agonistus. Um, so those are, those are, he's thinking about this structure over and over again and thinking about this relationship of respect um, to morality is respecting the wholeness of the other person. Is that a moral or is it an immoral attitude towards them? Um, and that's a hard call. Um, Kant was a believer in the death penalty. 
um, Kant who believed that you owed other human beings that the categorical imperative, the thing that was most required of you, was to um, um, to treat every other human being with respect. The way Kant puts it is not as means only, but as ends also. You must treat all others. Every human being is an end in himself or herself, although Kant didn't say or herself, but he meant it. Every human being is an end in him or herself and cannot only be used as a means to an end. Um, they always have to be treated as ends. But he was for the death penalty. And the question is, why was he for the death penalty? And the answer is because that showed respect for the murderer. If you treated them, if you didn't execute a murderer, then you would just be treating the murderer as um, an accident of nature. Um, in the same way that you might, you wouldn't punish a tree um, because a coconut fell off it and killed someone. Um, you would be treating a murderer as just um, an accidental freak of nature, um, and you know, throwing them in prison and not executing them would be treating them as subhuman. And to, you had to treat murderers as human too. And how do you treat a murderer as human? You execute the murderer. Um, so you can see that there, if that makes sense to you, it's a paradoxical sense, but you can see that it might make sense. And that is what Milton's official villains do. It's not what the White Witch does in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That is the White... C.S. Lewis wants to turn Satan... The White Witch is based on Satan. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis wants to turn Satan into... Um, uh, um, just a freak of nature, just just a selfish freak of nature. But it is what the satanic character in his Dark Materials does. That is Lord Asriel. The worst thing imaginable to him is that he has to treat Roger as a means rather than an end. And he does, but it's terrible. Um, that's the worst thing that he does. That's also a spoiler, but whatever. Yeah. Just uh, maybe an example of that. I think, if I'm getting it right, is that when people, some people say that Hitler, for example, was... Uh, he was insane, and so we have to kind of put him in a separate category. And others argue that, in fact, no, he should be yeah. judged as as a sane person doing terrible, sane yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you read that Mein Kampf, it has this whole treatise on his method and why and all sorts of gross things. But yeah, it is a question: what is, you know, how, what is the what is the most, in a way, most satisfying way of thinking about Hitler? Um, is he so monstrous that you regard him as inhuman? But if you do that, um, you, you're disparaging humanity. Well, no, I think what you're doing is you're not. Well, yeah, okay, you are disparaging humanity. Um, it, yeah, he's off the hook. Um, then he's a tornado. Um, then he's someone who is evil in a in a two-dimensional way. He's snidely whiplash um, on a world historical scale. Um, and but evil somehow that doesn't feel like you get to what makes evil evil. But if you treat him as a human, as an evil human being, then the problem with that is you start. There has to be some sort of empathy because to think of someone as a human, not sympathy but empathy, to think of someone as a human is to be able to um, think about why they have the point of view <coughs> they do and why they have the motives <coughs> that they do. Um, Coleridge talks about Iago as an example of. Um, Motiveless, motiveless malignity. Oh, malignity. Yes. Um, time to study. No, I'm just totally teasing you. That was really good that you came up with the phrase. Motiveless malignity. 
um, that is Iago destroys Othello, says Coleridge, for no reason at all, motiveless malignity. He's just bad. Um, And the question is, does that make it a good tragedy or not? Um, I don't think so, and I I also don't agree. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas Macbeth, you know, but if you if you think of Iago as evil in a way that Macbeth isn't, um, Iago just wants to hurt. Whereas Macbeth, there's lots el- lots of other stuff going on in Macbeth besides simply wanting to hurt. Um, which one is more evil, Macbeth or Iago? Um, that's another way of asking the question in somewhat less fraught terms. Okay, so back to this little debate. Um, what Comus is saying is, look at nature. Um, why are you vexed, lady? Why do you frown? Look at all this. Look at all this joy. This is to life so friendly or so cool to thirst. Why should you be so cruel to yourself and to those dainty limbs which nature lent for gentle usage and soft delicacy? But you invert the covenants of her trust and harshly deal like an ill borrower with that which you received on other terms, scorning the unexempt condition by which all mortal frailty must subsist. Refreshment after toil, ease after pain, that have been tired all day without repast, and timely rest have wanted. But for fair virgin, this will restore all again. Um, so, <coughs> where have you seen ease after pain? That phrase? Anyone remember Despair. it? Despair in Spencer. Ease after pain, port after stormy seas, life after death doth greatly please. So there's an echo of Spencer. I just hope you're noticing, um, even if dimly and even if subliminally, how many echoes of Shakespeare and of Spencer there are in comas. So the lady says, no, how dare you do this? Um, I would not taste at line 701, were it a draft, or at line 700, were it a draft for Juno when she banquets, I would not taste thy treasonous offer. None but such as are good men can give good things. And that which is not good is not delicious to a well-governed and wise appetite. And then Comus gives what might be his best speech, which is a speech about the glories of creation. Um, this is almost the this is the be fruitful and multiply speech that Comus is giving here. And he references the barrel too. Yeah, good. Oh, foolishness of men that lend their ears to those budge doctors of the Stoic fur and fetch their precepts from the cynic tub, praising the lean and sallow abstinence. Um, does that remind you of anything in Shakespeare? Famous line? That Cassius hath a lean men and hungry, hungry look. look about him. Let me have a button, men that are Yes. So Cassius, who's that's Julius Caesar, already suspicious of Cassius, who will be one of his murderers. So look at these people praising the lean and sallow abstinence. Wherefore, he asks very rightly, wherefore did nature pour her bounties forth with such a full and unwithdrawing hand, covering the earth with odors, fruits, and flocks, thronging the seas with swan innumerable, but all to please and sate the curious taste and set to work millions of spinning worms that in their green shops weave the smooth-haired silk to deck her sons, and that no corner might be vacant of her plenty. In her own loins she hutched the all-worshipped ore, 
and precious gems to store her children with. Uh, Spencer reference there? Mammon. Mammon, yeah. The cave of Mammon. If all the world, why all this wealth in nature, if all the world should in a pet of temperance feed on pulse, which is basically a kind of um, watered-down lentil stew, if all the world should in a pet of temperance feed on pulse, drink the clear stream, and nothing wear but freeze, the all-giver would be unthanked would be unpraised, not half his riches known, and yet despised, and we should serve him as a grudging master, as a penurious niggard of his wealth, and live like nature's bastards, not her sons. And nature herself would be quite surcharged with her own weight, and strangled with her waste fertility, the earth cumbered and the winged air dark with plumes, the herds would overmultitude their lords, the sea or fraught would swell, and the unsought diamonds would so emblaze the forehead of the deep, and so bestud with stars that they below would grow inured to light and come at last to gaze upon the sun with shameless brows. List, lady, be not coy and be not cozened with that same vaunted name, virginity. Beauty is nature's coin must not be hoarded, but must be current, and the good thereof consists in mutual and partaken bliss, unsavory in the enjoyment of itself if you let slip time like a neglected rose, it withers on the stalk with languished head. Yeah. I'm just I'm thinking that there's a similar speech I can't find right now in, in Paradise Lost. I think it's either yes. either Raphael or or Satan who convinces either Eve or Adam and Eve about uh, no. About we'll the we'll get creation. to it. Adam asks Raphael yeah. about it. Right. This he's is a, just the question that Adam will raise with Raphael. Foolishness as well. Yeah. Foolish man. Yeah. So that's a great speech about the beauty of creation. Um, obviously, there are things in it that are questionable, which is like. Plus, there's lots of gold, which is really nice. Um, but there's also all about the beauty of nature. <coughs> then she responds, and her response is important, so just give me two more minutes. I had not thought, she says at line 755, to have unlocked my lips in this unhallowed air, but that this juggler would think to charm my judgment. So not only her body, but her judgment and her eyes, as mine eyes, obtruding false rules pranked in reason's garb, I hate when vice can bolt her arguments and virtue has no tongue to check her pride. Imposter, do not charge most innocent nature as if she would her children should be riotous with her abundance. She, good Catrice, means her provision only to the good that live according to her sober laws and holy dictate of pure temperance. And then she basically says things should be distributed evenly. There's God's plenty is to be distributed to the poor not to make the rich happier. Then nature's full blessings would be well dispensed in unsuperfluous even proportion. She's getting that from King Lear. Let the superfluous and lust-dieted man expose himself to what the wretches feel. That is, um, superfluousness is bad when there's poverty in the world. And then she goes on. Shall I go on at line 779? Shall I go on, or have I said enough? To him that dares arm his profane tongue with contemptuous words against the sun-clad power of chastity, fain would I say something yet to what end? Thou hast not ear nor soul to apprehend the sublime notion and high mystery that must be uttered to enfold the sage and serious doctrine of virginity. And thou art worthy that thou shouldst not know more happiness than this thy present lot. 
enjoy your wit, your dear wit and gay rhetoric that has so well been taught her dazzling fence. Thou art not fit to hear thyself convinced. So notice that she's saying is you're not human enough for me to make this argument against you. And yet she's saying, but I want you to know that. So she's threading a needle of treating him with the respect due to another human being, but complaining that he doesn't treat himself with that respect. You are not fit to hear the argument I'm about to convince you, I'm about to use to try to convince you that you're wrong. To try to convince someone they're, that they're wrong is to treat them as real, as human. To feel resent for some, resentment for someone is to treat them as a real person. It's a sign of respect to resent someone. If you don't resent them, if you're indifferent to them, there's no respect there. The lady is basically saying, I'm not sure that you're worth my resentment, and I resent you for that fact. And she is threading a needle of treating him with just enough respect not to be accused of failing to do so. At the same time, as saying that he is the one who is failing to be fully human. That he's subhuman. That he's subhuman. Um, but it's a very borderline thing. It's very hard and subtle to do. But in this story, austerity, sage and sober doctrine of virginity, austerity defeats wealth and richness and beauty. You could put it in terms we'll use later on. The sublime defeats the beautiful. The lady is sublime. That's the word she uses whereas Comus offers her beauty, but sublimity is greater than beauty. In Paradise Lost, sublimity is going to be on the side of Satan. The same arguments, but with vastly different tonalities in Paradise Lost, which you should have read up to book four of by Monday. Have a good weekend. Good weekend to quit smoking. Book four. <laughs> book four. <laughs>